Lord, thank you for your word, for your good word to us. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us in it today, uh, that it would not just be words to us, but that in the word we would hear about the word, about Jesus, about you and, and your glory and all that you've done for us, that we would come to wonder more greatly at your goodness, Lord, and therefore uh, walk more faithfully the path that you've set before us. Um, Lord, we pray that we would be people who um, live out uh, what we're called to by the gospel deposit that you have placed in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it strikes me to say that uh, we, we're in school holidays, we have more visitors than usual, and that it's a really great time for me to remember to say, hi, I'm John, I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Church. Uh, it, it's so wonderful to have you here with us this morning. We're in uh, Luke chapter 19 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there's a, there's a little mound of them back there on the, on the bar. Um, we have a bar, but uh, not for necessarily much longer, but we do have a bar. Uh, we are in the parable of the ten miners. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I want to say there are some events that are so noteworthy and famous that you can say one non-specific sentence uh, completely out of context and basically everyone in the room will know what you're talking about. Um, let, me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, unsinkable ship struck by iceberg. Who knows the name of the boat I'm talking about? What? Some people are just born stirrers. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, you know, maybe, maybe even know, like, like the Titanic, right? Like, are we on the same page? You know, and surely there's been many boats sunk by icebergs in history, but one so famously that we all think of the Titanic. Um, president killed by shooter on grassy knoll. Which president am I talking about? Yeah, JFK. Um, you know, maybe even uh, September 11. Now, how many September 11s have there been in history? And yet you all know the year I'm talking about, right? Um, no one's thinking 2002 here. Um, you know, I, I would actually bet that, um, that the events of one specific September 11 are so ingrained into most of us uh, that, that more than 90% of the people in this room could name the year, the events, the number of aeroplanes and towers, probably even, for a number of us, where we were when it happened. Um, I, I, I could do that for you. I'm not going to. It's not relevant, but there you go. Try this out. Number four. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. No? No one? Fair enough. It's a little bit more dated than the others. Uh, 2,000 years more dated. Uh, it's a little bit less familiar, isn't it? Um, but for the people of Jesus' day, th those are the words that Jesus opens his parable with, by the way. For the people of Jesus' day, those words that Jesus opens it with uh, would have been very, very familiar indeed. Uh, there, there was a, a, and for this, we're gonna, we're we don't usually do a full history lesson during a sermon. It's a bit odd, but, uh, but we're going to do it today. There was a, a fella in uh, Jesus' day named Herod Archelaus. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, but he was a ruler in the area of Palestine for about nine years. Uh, and as Jesus uh, starts this parable, he draws on these known events surrounding Herod Archelaus um, to build some imagery that would have surprised his li listeners. This would have shook them awake that he was using this as his image for himself. 
Herod Archelaus was the son of King Herod. You might know of King Herod uh, if, you, if you've read your, your Gospels. He ruled over Judea and the surrounds when Jesus was born. Uh, it's significant that King Herod was called King Herod because king wasn't a title that a man could just throw on himself uh, nor that a country could throw on their leader in this po- at that point in history. It had to be bestowed on a leader by the Roman occupiers who were reigning over them. Uh, so, so Caesar had to give him the title king and Herod had worked, King Herod had worked hard for his title. But when he died, he left about half of his kingdom to Herod Archelaus, his son, uh, but was unable to leave the title king to him because it wasn't his to give. So with a, a damaged ego driving him, Archelaus took a journey to Rome to ask Caesar to make him king. But when he arrived, things didn't go as planned. His delegation uh, were actually not as unified as he'd hoped in their desire for him to rule. And then a, a delegation of 50 citizens of the Jews showed up having chased after him to let the Romans know that they didn't think that he should be a king, that he didn't deserve to be king. And they were actually joined by 8,000 kind of uh, expatriate Jew- Jewish citizens who were living in Rome at the time. Uh, and they were right, by the way. He was a terrible, terrible king or ruler because uh, he never was a king. Now, if you want to know how that story ends, because that, that's where the, the parable deviates from the story, then you can come and ask me after the service or you can write Herod Archelaus into into Google after this, if, if that's your, your flavor. Um, Josephus gives us those events. He's an early historian. Um, but, uh, but the point is that Jesus intentionally chooses this really jarring example of Herod Archelaus to illustrate to those following him what's about to happen. And Luke tells us why in the first verse of our passage today. Uh, he says that, they were coming toward Jerusalem, uh, and and remember from last week where they are. So so they're in Jericho. Uh, they're just 24 k's from Jerusalem, uh, and those following him have this false expectation of how things are going to go down when they get to Jerusalem. There are they they're thinking that Jesus is going to walk into town and overthrow the Romans. Essentially, that's the summary version. They've got Old Testament words like Zechariah 14 in their heads that promise that God will send himself as a ruler. God himself will come down and the Mount of Olives will be split in two uh, and his rule will extend over the whole earth. And they're picturing that in a very militaristic reality way. It's what the people were probably thinking as they looked at Jesus expecting the Messiah on the basis of what they've been told the Messiah will do. That's why earlier in the chapter, when Jesus uh, gave that graphic detail about how he was going to die, his disciples just didn't get it. It, 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 Way over the top. But Jesus chooses this story of Herod Archelaus, I think, uh, because because it's jarring, because it shakes them awake, because it would have caused them to sit up and listen. Herod Archelaus is about as far from the king that Jesus is and the king that they expected him to be as you could imagine. They're not expecting Jesus to go anywhere to receive a kingdom except just down the road to Jerusalem. 
But Jesus is telling them he's going to go away. There is still more that will happen before that he returns in power. And while the words he speaks here uh, spoke to his listeners uh, about their future, for us, uh, about um, they, they kind of speak to our present in, in the time we're in. So they spoke to him about, them about after he had died, and they speak to us about right now. So let's have a look at this parable now. Let's, let's, let's dive into it and see what it has to say. Uh, first off, drawing on that imagery of Herod, Archelaus, Jesus explains what he's about to do. He's going to go into a far country and receive a kingdom. The far country that Jesus is going to go into is his death. He's saying that he is going to go further away from them than they can reach to take his throne. He's going to die and then he will receive the kingdom when he rises and ascends. He said explicitly that he's going to die and rise again, less than, less than a chapter ago. Romans 1 says that Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. So Jesus is saying he's going to be king. He but he will go away to receive his kingdom. And, and then he's going to return. And what the story will emphasize then is that there will be a significant gap there between going and returning. Between his death, resurrection and ascension and his return at his second coming. And whilst he's gone, the people of the world will not want him as king, by and large. He says that the citizens of the world hate him, and again, echoing the story of Archelaus, they send a delegation to say that they don't want him to be their king. Now, do you see at this point, we have the, the core facts of the gospel that have been in parable form drawn out for us. These, these are the core facts of the good news. Jesus has died for his people, for us. He has risen and he is reigning and he will return one day to judge the earth and to make it right, to make all things new. And the world opposes him. But he will return and he will reign forever. But I think a lot of the time, uh, if you're a Christian here today, a lot of the time we act like this parable and other parts of the Bible kind of finish there. That's the end of what Jesus had to say. Jesus died. Jesus is risen. Jesus will return. Hooray! My eternal... And, and, and yes, hooray, by the way. I'm not... Shouldn't be sarcastic about that. That is the core of the good news. But my eternal destiny is dealt with. And although the world doesn't like him now, he's coming back so I can, I can sit tight. I can go about my business until he comes. But this is where the parable begins to get quite practical and calls us action. The ruler in the parable, before he goes, he calls his servants to him and gives them a minor each and tells them to engage in business until he comes. Um, now, this is the bit where uh, a bit of broader Bible knowledge can actually trip you up just a little bit. Um, don't get me wrong. It, it's good to know your Bible. Please do do that. Uh, it's, 
an important thing that we can access Bibles in our language today and read them and understand them. God made it for that. But, but uh, some might hear this and think, hey, it's just like the parable of the talents over in Matthew, but with miners. Uh, and if you know the, the parable of the talents, if you don't know, feel free to just listen and, and smile and nod. Um, but you know that it's, it's fairly similar, right? A man, a master goes on a journey, leaves a monetary unit called a talent uh, with his servants. And when he gets back, they tell him what they've done with it, right? And, and it's multiplied. Um, but, but this, it must be said, isn't that parable. This is different. And the, and the details and the point of what Jesus is saying here are quite different to the point and the details of what he says there. In the parable of the talents, the master gives different quantities of money to the different servants. And the point is that we are each gifted in different ways by God. Uh, we've had different means provided to us. Uh, some with more than others. And, and the people of God are to make good use of their varied giftings and resources until Jesus returns. But in the parable, parable of the miners, which is also a monetary unit, by the way, uh, a miner, uh, in the parable of the miners, there's this utter equality, you see. The ruler calls 10 servants and they all receive a miner each. They all receive the same deposit. They, they, they receive the miner. That, that, it's a fairly valuable thing that he gives them. It's about uh, three months labor worth of money. Uh, so so that's a, it's a decent stash of cash, right? Uh, and they all receive the same mission. He says, engage in business until I come. The point here is that if you are a believer in Jesus, and regardless of anything else about you, um, we've all received the same deposit in us. We're all called to act on that. God has placed the good news of his son in each and every Christian's hands and heart. He's invested in you, and he has called you to multiply it. He sent you on the mission, without exception, to take the gospel to others and not to be lazy or distracted or fearful in doing so. We have all been given the same treasure and the same task, do you see, if you're a believer in Jesus. If you're not, that treasure could be yours. And so have a look at, at, at the page there at the end of verse 14. Right? Um, there's, a, there's a full stop. I've got it highlighted in my, in my Bible here. Uh, there's a full stop and a gap between the sentence, uh, sentences. Normal gap, just a space. It's not unusual. Um, they're, they're pretty standard in all forms of text. Except for ancient Greek. Um, that, that space there between verse 14 and verse 15, that's where we live right now. Uh, we live in the space between Jesus' first coming and he, his second coming. We live with a treasure of incalculable value placed within us, the gospel of Jesus, and a mission of unparalleled importance given to us, multiply disciples as we take the gospel out. And then Jesus goes on and he tells us what will happen when he returns. Jesus says in the parable that he will return. For us, at our point in history, the way you'd express it is that the king has received his kingdom, Jesus is reigning, and Jesus will return. And when he returns, he'll call his servants to him and receive an account of how they have 
use the deposit given to them. This isn't the most popular teaching that the Bible gives us, uh, especially for Christians today. Uh, I haven't actually heard many messages in my life, and I've sat under sermons my whole life. Uh, I haven't heard many where this is emphasized, but do you know that the Bible is really clear? Christians will have their works judged. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now that can be challenging to hear, understandably. Uh, at first it sounds like we're saying that salvation is in fact not by grace, it was all a trick, uh, but that you're saved by your works. But here are the three realities that the Bible presents us with that I think balance this. First, one who is in Christ will not be turned away at that judgment. No one who has faith in Jesus will fail to enter God's kingdom when Jesus returns, without exception. It's faith that saves us. It's quite clear. If you want... Bible verses, gosh, we could go all day, but Ephesians 2, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Second reality, equally, no one will enter who has not lived out their faith. And this isn't saying that you're saved by your works. It's saying that salvation produces works. I have to be really clear here. The Bible doesn't say you're saved by good works and nor does it say that you're saved by grace and then maintained by good works. It says that you are saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus alone. But, but if, that, if faith truly is faith, then faith will produce change in a person. It will produce works in a person. And so if there is no change, if a person receives the gospel and across a lifespan is completely unchanged, then they eventually prove that they have not received the gospel. Ephesians 2 says that you were saved for good works. That's immediately after that bit I just quoted. Which God prepared beforehand for you. So even the works themselves are God's gracious provision to us. James says, he says, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He says, faith without works is dead. Those words slap me in the face some days. The, the reformers uh, put it this way. They had a lovely little catch line. They said, we're justified by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. That's why the third servant in the parable loses what he has. Because in the end, he never really had it. The gospel was given to him. He may have claimed to have believed it, but in the end, his works, his complete apathy toward the spread of the gospel revealed that he was masquerading. Like the parable says, if he had believed that what he had said that he had believed, it would have changed him. He would have acted on it. It's what the king calls him out on, right? He says, you say this, but you live like that. True faith in Jesus always changes a person, always produces fruit. Just like, just like your implicit 
faith and trust in the chair that you're sitting on right now led you to sit down in it this morning, true faith in the gospel message of Jesus will produce works. It will produce the work of taking the good news to others. But then there's the third reality, right? And, uh, and this, this one the Bible gives us very clearly, and it's to be embraced and to be enjoyed. The God who graciously saves, graciously gives faith, graciously calls us into the mission for the spread of the gospel, graciously provides the works that will see that mission fulfilled in our lives, in the most astounding display of generosity and grace, he will one day reward those who have multiplied the gospel deposit in their lives. That was my brain exploding, if you're not used to my mannerisms. Um, or even if you are. Uh, even though the work has been entirely a product of his grace in your life. Back in Luke 12, we had this similar startling message uh, when Jesus called us to stay awake, ready for his return. And he said, be awake like servants waiting for their master in the night. When he comes and finds them awake, he'll dress himself for service and he will serve them. Breathtaking grace. If you're not familiar with the relationship of servant and master, that's not how it typically works. When we have done only what should have been expected of us in the first place, and only by God's grace and generosity has it happened, on the day that Jesus comes, he will reward his people. And so we see in the parable, the king comes back and, and the servants who have been faithful in what was given to them are rewarded in ways that are deeply disproportionate to what was given to them and to what they've achieved. The first servant says, the money has multiplied 10 times. Notice that both of these guys say, uh, say this in the language of what God has given them has produced more. In the end, they're saying, you did it, God. What, what's the exact wording there? Um, he says, Lord, your miner has produced 10 miners more. But having made the 10 miners, what happens then? He's given command of 10 cities. I think, I think it can be hard for us to get our head around exactly what's happened just there, the, the, the exchange. It's a parable, by the way. It's imagery for something else. But, but the, the weight of the exchange there is unbelievable. If you carry the financial analogy forward into our day, it's kind of like... If, if you gave me $20,000 and I brought you back $200,000 and you gave me Australia. Like. <laughs> it's completely disproportionate. It's completely gracious and generous. And we don't really know exactly what that reward actually consists of. The reality that will be after Jesus comes back of the new creation is just beyond imagining. This is why we have to use pictures like this. But we do know that the best thing about it will be living in close relationship with the God who made it all. There's this uh, German theologian named uh, Helmut Thielicke. It's T-H-I-E-L-I-C-K-E -E, if you're interested. And he said that the splendor of the cities committed to them will be far less important than the fact that now they are the viceroys, the, the sub-rulers of the Lord, and therefore among those 
closer to the truth. And thus we'll always have access to him and be able to speak to him and tarry in his presence at all times. For heaven does not consist of what we shall receive, rather this be whether this be uh, white robes and heavenly crowns or ambrosia and nectar, I'm still not sure what ambrosia is, by the way, but rather heaven consists in what we shall become, namely companions of the king. And then, as Bron subtly noted before, the parable ends on this super intense note. Jesus reminds us that those who reject him as king face terrible judgment. It doesn't sit very comfortably with us today, does it? Um, I don't think it's ever sat comfortably with anyone. Uh, But the reality is that it is where we all stand rightly, rightly under God's justice, but for the gospel. If Jesus had not come into our lives, it is where we would all be. If he had not died for us, we would all stand under his judgment. So this final note of the parable reminds us of the urgency of the gospel task. The urgency of what has been deposited in you. The way that God has called us uh, to is not the, the multiplication of resources or of money. It is the carrying out of the gospel message to save those who face destruction. It's the pouring out of the only hope that anyone has in the face of their own rightful condemnation. So the question we're left with here is, um, what do we mean by bearing gospel fruit? You know, we can can say it all day long, you need to to live out the reality of the gospel in the life, but what does that mean? And and I want to answer that quickly on kind of two levels. On one level, firstly, we must know that bearing fruit is a whole-of-life thing that looks different in different people. It means more than just going out that door today, finding someone, telling them they need Jesus, uh, although it doesn't mean less than that. Gospel fruit does mean seeking out the gospel opportunities in life. Seeking out the chances to speak the truths of Jesus loving, lovingly into the lives of others and remembering, remembering the weight of what we're handling here. And so putting our fears and our laziness aside. You know, often, often it's a thing we won't even personally see the direct fruit of in this life. But by God's grace, often he does reward our feeble efforts with, with interest, with excitement, even with faith in people we would not have expected it from. Gospel fruit can be prayer. You can't overestimate the power of someone who persistently prays for the lost, prays over their neighbours and friends, and even people who are hostile to you, who prays in love for them, that they need the good news of Jesus and prays that they would accept it. Let me step off my, my, my wording here and just say, this week that super club thing's happening. Please pray for it. If it's just us, it's nothing. If God's in it, it's everything. Gospel fruit can be gospel-centered love for your neighbors. 
It can be seeking to fill the needs of those who have needs. It can be seeking to be a father to the fatherless and to care for the poor and for the widow and for those who are struggling and for those who have struggles in life in every way, you know. And, and the more you live, the more you realize if you, if you get close to people, everyone's struggling with something. Or if they're not, they will be soon. <laughs> it can work out, that, that gospel-centered love for neighbors can just work out in so many ways. Gospel fruit can be enabling the direct gospel work of others. You know, when we ran Alpha here last year, and I presumably when we run it here again this year, for every person who was faithfully sitting in the sessions and talking to people about Jesus, uh, there was another person or two looking after kids, you know, cooking food, praying, yes, from home as well. Gospel fruit is as much about those within our homes as it is about those outside of our homes. If you have kids, gospel ministry to your kids is a key form of fruitful living here, of, of living out the deposit God has put in you. And likewise, discipling them by letting them see you reaching others with the gospel is a form of fruitful gospel ministry. You're growing them to be a disciple maker there. And, and, and I don't mean that list to be exhaustive. I just wanted to say gospel fruit is a big thing. It's an all of life thing and it works out in so many different ways. But then at the second level, the answer to the question, what does it mean to bear gospel fruit, is that it prim can't primarily be about a list of actions. It can't be primarily about a list or about a strategy for reaching the lost. And I say primarily there intentionally because it is good to have a list of those that you're praying for. It is good to have a strategy for how you plan to reach the people it is good to know that you are called and commanded to take the good news of Jesus out and make disciples, but it isn't primary. What's primary is that you have the gospel deposit in your heart and you don't cease to return to that reality. The reason that is primary and the shape of the fruit is secondary is that the fruit is just that, it's fruit. Fruit always comes from roots, and if the roots aren't there, the fruit always dies. If you're not always returning to the good news for yourself, if you're not seeking to regularly turn away from sin and turn to your Savior, acknowledging the power of what He has done for you, if you're not being struck again and again and again as you see more and more how desperately hopeless you are by the glorious gospel truth that Jesus knew it all and he chose to save you, he chose to die for you knowing all of your sin and more of the sin than you will ever know in your own heart. He knew your inabilities, he knew your past, present and future and he didn't spitefully die for you or begrudgingly die for you, he came down in love and he chose to carry all of the weight, all of the punishment on that cross and to bring you to life in God through his resurrection. If you're not embracing the gospel deposit, then gospel fruit won't follow. So rejoice in the gospel. That's the, that's the big lesson. It's always the big lesson. I'm sorry if you feel like we're rep repetitious here, but we are and it's good. Embrace the word of God by reminding each other 
of the truth about Jesus every day, clinging to the roots of your fruit. That's what it must look like to bear gospel fruit in the end. Now, I realize you might hear a message like this today, and you may hear the stuff about reward and eternal joy, but that might not sink in because you're stuck back on the bit about having to multiply what has been given to you. You might hear that and begin to doubt your faith. Real possibility. And if you can look at your life and see no gospel fruit over a long period of time, there's, there's a place for this being the time, the, the thing that, that shakes you a bit, that shakes you into seeing your need for repentance and for true faith in Jesus for the first time even. But for a lot of us, I think we run, uh, we run into the problem of, of, of uh, relativism, see how I put it. We look at people around us through whom God has saved many who have uh, produced lots of gospel fruit, or at least seem to have, even who have you know, led gospel movements and things, and we begin to worry that I need to do that. For, for God to approve of what has happened in my life, for me to have genuine faith, my works need to be what that person over there has done. Worse still, I, I need to be that person if, if I'm going to step into God's new creation, if I'm, if I'm going to be saved at all. And gradually, we begin to see our salvation as by works, and works that we define, for that matter. There's, there's two things we must say to that. First, Jesus doesn't say you need to produce fruit by other people's Standards. I think that's why there's the three servants who come back to Jesus in this parable, right? Not everyone produces 10 miners. And not everyone is expected to. And both of the servants who bring back anything receive a reward that is deeply disproportionate to what they've done. It's, it's beyond imagining. But second, God's eyes see what our eyes do not see. You know, the Old Testament story of David's anointing? Is anyone familiar with that? Um, Samuel goes, uh, the prophet Samuel goes and is sent uh, to the house of Jesse uh, and he sees this big, impressive first son and he says, oh yeah, that's the guy. That's a paraphrase, by the way. Um, and God says, no, not him. And he explains, uh, and this bit I'm, I'm quoting directly, he says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the end, when we're talking about gospel fruit, about multiplying the gospel investment that God has placed in you, we're really just talking about something that gives a reflection of what has happened in the heart already. There's every chance that a person can have a life that looks faithful from our perspective, from the outside, but lacks faith in God on the inside. Is run by all sorts of things can motivate a person to, to look like they're really faithful to God. Selfish ambition can make someone into a very effective looking pastor, for instance. In Isaiah 29, God rebukes Judea uh, because they draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. The key issue, the one issue, is always whether there is faith 
in the heart. Whether a person, person truly trusts in Jesus. Often the most faithful people aren't the ones giving the gospel message, but the ones who are just living in small, faithful ways. Showing the love of Jesus to the lost. Showing the love of Jesus to their kids in patience when they, when they deserve impatience. Praying persistently for lost neighbours and friends. Having conversations about Jesus. Just that one conversation where you got over the fear and spoke to them. Even if you never get to see the, the gospel fruit of that in that person's life. Have you guys heard, have you guys heard of a guy, he's not very well known, his name was Billy Graham. I believe it may have been short for William, if that helps. Um, no, of course, uh, if you're a Christian, you've probably heard of Billy Graham, right? Um, he, was a, he was an evangelist. Um, he did a lot of that, ran crusades all over the world. Um, fantastic guy. Have you heard of Pearl Good? I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly because I haven't heard of her very well. Goody, possibly, G-O-O-D-E. Pearl was this kind of older lady uh, who... Um, has had a little bit of recognition after her death, actually, but that in her life was not noted. Um, what Pearl did was that she went along to a Billy Graham crusade one time in, in LA where she lived. Uh, and she, she was already a Christian. She just felt compelled to go along and to pray for people there. Um, and she joined the prayer team there whilst it was in her town. Uh, and then she spent years and years and years of her life just, just taking buses to places where Billy Graham was running crusades. Uh, she estimated, uh, uh, apparently, that she did 48,000 miles of greyhound trips uh, to Billy Graham's crusades. Um, and all she did was she'd go, she'd hire a hotel room, and she'd pray for it. Um, she'd pray that people would be saved. Now, please, don't hear the story of Pearl Good and just, just create for yourself another relative standard of, like, well, I haven't travelled 48,000 miles, or however many kilometres that is. Faithfulness looks different in different people's lives. The, the important thing is that it is the working out of faith in Jesus. It is the working out of the deposit that he's given you. He sees your heart. He sees the way you seek to follow him. He sees your failing and he forgives when we repent. And he loves us and he leads us. And we grow at different paces and in different ways. But he is working out his gospel mission with people. Let's seek to walk in it this week in another way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, I certainly have those weeks where I look at my life and I think, Lord, has anything changed? How could you love one such as me, one so uh, unfruitful as me? could a faith be genuine that fails so many times? And yet, Lord, I know that by your grace, you are working out genuine faith in Jesus in my life. And Lord, we know that if we have believed in him, that it is by that faith we're saved. And so, Lord, we come humbly before you today. And we ask that you would 
especially remind us of the good truth of the gospel. Freshly lead us to see your amazing grace to us. And as we see it, Lord, let let there be fruit in our life. Let the deposit you've put in us produce more. And we just don't just pray it personally, we pray it for this church and for the churches that those visiting us are from, if they're from a church, we pray that, that this people would be multipliers of the gospel deposit. So, so awestruck with your goodness to us, with the cross of our Lord and his empty tomb, that we would tell others about the king that we follow, that we would pray for others, that we would long to see the lost saved, and that at the end we would be able to say, Lord, what you put in us has produced more. So I want to pray specifically for our our gospel communities, Lord, that they would be a home of mission, that they would be a place where we drive each other on in this, drive each other towards the glorious truth of the gospel and live out what you've called us to as a result. I want to pray for each person here's personal lives that we would be people who are struck by gospel truth every day and so carry it every day out to our kids, to our families, to our neighbours, to those we run into in the shops, to everyone. Lord, I want to pray for those here who do not know the truth of the gospel, does not believe in the saving work of Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that a citizen who's turned against you, Lord, would become a a servant given the great deposit of the gospel and looking forward to the day of your return. Pray that your cross would save them, that they would see that there's nothing that they need to bring, all by your goodness and grace, and that they would be rescued by the blood of Jesus. I pray it in Jesus' name.